0: Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast. For the week of Monday, November 21st, 2011, I'm Pat Coleman.
1: And I'm Keith McMillan.
0: And we're uh, through the first round of playoffs. Half of the teams remaining in the uh, Division III postseason have been eliminated, and we are down to 16 teams on the road to Salem. I suspect if you've gotten to the point of uh, downloading and listening to the podcast, you might know that uh, we still have an opportunity, obviously, to have uh, this game seven of Purple on Purple as uh, Mount Union and Wisconsin-Whitewater won handily. Those were not the big surprises of the first round, uh, Keith. There certainly were some, however. Uh, what was your biggest surprise in the first round?
1: My biggest surprise wasn't so much a winner. You know, we had a couple of upset winners. I think three teams were on the road, and we had a couple of games that were a little closer than we thought they would be. But the big surprise for me was uh, was North Central beating uh, Dubuque by as wide of a margin as they did 46 point margin 59 13 in that game uh, Dubuque nobody had really slowed them down all season they'd been an offensive juggernaut been more than a one-man show that they have you know one of the best players in the country in, in Michael Zwiefel and um, yeah, they, they really didn't get anything going against North Central. The game was tied at seven after the first quarter. And uh, at the six eleven mark in the third quarter, North Central was up 38-7. Uh, they rushed for 411 yards, did the Cardinals. Had two backs go over 120. And, uh, and another guy just had two carries for uh, 78 yards. So uh, clearly the, the more physical team. And um, the the spread, I think, in the middle two quarters for North Central was 31-6. So that that's when they... Uh, pulled away. And, and that's a team that, uh, in terms of, of North Central, that, you know, has, has been a top 10 team all season and that some of us believed in. But um, I, I think we have some new believers
0: now. I was going to say, um, you know, you believe in them more than most. Uh, the, the first time, well, not the first time, obviously, It, it but it happens occasionally. But you picked against uh, Mount Union in the uh, Around the Nation uh, picks this past week.
1: I, I, I did. And part of the reason for that was that, you um, Mount Union looks a little bit vulnerable in the sense that they don't have that, that real transcendent offensive player, that player who can bail them out in a close game like we've seen them do so many times over the years. Um, you know, Cecil Shorts did it against Wesley a few years ago in a tight game. They lost their quarterback and they just, you know, ran read option with, with Cecil, who was a wider receiver. They put him in at quarterback and he saved the game. Uh, you know, we've seen, you know, Nate can make, have great games in the playoffs. And, you know, sometimes for Mount Union, to be quite honest, their, their transcendent player doesn't doesn't, um, emerge until partway through the playoffs. So, uh, so it could be still that, that, that performance is yet to come and that mountain union is going to prove a lot to us. Uh, and to be honest, most of their best players this season seem to be on defense. You know, we talk about guys like Arthur Smith and Nick Driscoll and, uh, Alex Ferreira guys who, you know, started for several years, uh, Chaz Jordan, although he hasn't, uh, he hasn't necessarily been playing. Um, so, so, I mean, I do think there's a chance for, uh, for, for North Central to, to beat Mount Union, but first they got to get past Wabash, who also had a great game in the first round, and uh, that's that part of the bracket um, is a real exciting part of the bracket because every week, every round coming from there looks like we're going to have a good game, and it hasn't always been the case with Mount Union's road to Salem, where they've had to go through tough teams to get there.
0: One of the things I like about having uh, Keith around is uh, when we when he talks about Cecil Shorts in that uh, in that semifinal game. Uh, he he goes out of his way to mention that uh, he ran read option the, the second half. Everybody else would say, you know, the the wide receiver goes into into the backfield and takes this takes a direct snap. He must be running the wildcat. But Keith knows the difference. Um, my biggest surprise of the first round had to be, I think, the the performance of Hobart, considering what. Uh, what they didn't have, you know, on, on offense this past week, uh, certainly, uh, you know, to go into your uh, to go into your playoff game against a top 10 team uh, on the road without your starting quarterback. There are not uh, too many teams in the country who would uh, feel too confident about their uh, about their situation. And Hobart uh, put together some long drives. They ended up uh, sputtering out. Uh, you know, the the special teams issues that uh, I think. Um, uh, Frank Rossi and the folks in the Liberty League area of the country have been talking about, uh, probably a factor there, passing up uh, some field goal opportunities uh, when they got down in uh, close yardage range. And then uh, taking advantage of a couple short fields to, to get their points, but still to be in a, a position where you know the entire fourth quarter, you're seven points away uh, from tying the game against Wesley, uh, uh, essentially a number two seed in this bracket, is a, a pretty impressive performance in my mind.
1: Yeah, and, and again, Pat, you mentioned they were, they were down uh you know a couple of their their top offensive players, including their quarterback, and uh they had three drives, as you mentioned, um, you know, sputter out I think inside the five yard line, and, and that was, you know, potentially the key in the game. And I, I talked a little bit to, to some of the folks inside the Wesley program uh on, on Sunday morning and, and they said that that whole team was much better than than a low seed, than a, than a normal seven seed that they, you know, there's a certain caliber of team that um, these power teams get used to facing in the first round. And, and it, you know, Mount Union with a big blowout and, and Whitewater with a big blowout on Saturday, you know, not playing the, the strongest teams. You know, St. Thomas was another one that, that had a blowout. But you look at Wesley, though, that, that had a tight game and against a team that probably didn't get enough respect um, by it through through its seating. And that's also a team who's going to jump up, I think in the final top 25, you know, they might've been eliminated in the first round, but you, you look uh, at Hobart, not just hanging with Wesley, but really having an opportunity, several opportunities to win that game. Uh, and, and again, you know, weekend not having their best players. I think that's one of the, the standout performances around one. And not only was the the Hobart Wesley game, one of the standout performances around one, just in terms of Hobart's effort, but it was also one of the, the you know, few close games in round one. And, uh, Pat, you know, there's 16 games on Saturday, a lot of them going on simultaneously. You're, you're at one game and it's hard to pay attention to them all. But when you had a chance to step back and, and, and look at all 16 games, which one do you think was the best game on Saturday?
0: Well, there's certainly a lot of, of really good games. And, and I, um, I, I'm I i sure some people will would, would normally feel slighted, but I think any time... You've got 16 games, and one of them went to triple overtime. Uh, there, that's some pretty good empirical evidence that that's your best game of the day. And, uh, you know, Monmouth was, you know, basically down uh, the entire game. That's a game that, you know, since I was at the St. Thomas game, uh, people there were, you know, I, I'm sure this probably happens uh, to you too. Um, you're at a game, and people are uh, bugging you to find out what's going on elsewhere. Uh, in this instance, uh, you know, everybody in the Press box over at St. Thomas has a vested interest in what's going on uh, in Bloomington, Illinois, and uh, Illinois Wesleyan has a uh, has a lead, and then Monmouth chips away, chips away, uh, ties it up in regulation, and then eventually uh, wins in triple overtime. Long after everybody's left the press box to go to the uh, post game news conferences, I-, I don't think that it would be really hard to um, to take offense. I think at at uh, at your game not being on this list, obviously. Uh, you know, uh, the Cal Lutheran-Linfield game is a really good game as well uh, and and not the only uh, really good game on Saturday. But triple overtime is really hard to beat. And you've got the uh, all-time leading passer and leading touchdown thrower in, in Division Three. Um, you know, still in the bracket. is Alex Tanney, 32 for 43, 336 yards and a couple of touchdowns to uh, keep Monmouth in the bracket? Yeah, and, and having to
1: face a, a pretty stout defense uh, that, that Illinois Wesleyan Brought into the playoffs. And, and as you mentioned, Pat, only 17 points in, in regulation, but able to come through uh, with, with the points in overtime that, that they needed. You know, the, the way it stood out for me on Saturday was you know, I was coming from from uh, Johns Hopkins and, and that game was uh, one time zone ahead of the Monmouth, Illinois, Westland game. So uh, as I'm hitting the road. Uh, that game, it, it, the overtime game is still ending and you can get the, you know, this day and age, 2011, you have all the links on the website. So you can get the, the live video, you can get the audio and I'm driving through the city of Baltimore. And I, I literally have to say to myself uh keith pull over and watch this game because you can't keep looking at it while you're trying to drive <laughs> you know, that, that's no way that's no way to tell your children somebody has to tell my kids uh your, your dad died because he was trying to watch triple overtime monmouth illinois wesleyan game you know i know i know i may be a little bit uh, too much into d3 but i don't want to be uh that much into it where, where i you know crash into something so I, I literally did have to pull over and watch the, the third overtime and, and it's a great moment to see um uh, you know, to see the Scots get a win, it's big for the Midwest Conference and big for that program and big for us to get a chance to see uh, Alex Taney play another week.
0: Yeah, and I'll be pretty happy because I'll get a chance to see him play in person on Saturday at St. Thomas. Um, you, you mentioned that Illinois Wesleyan had this, uh, has this great defense, and that's true. The reason why I picked uh, Monmouth to win in triple take this past week was I thought that uh, I wasn't sure that Illinois Wesleyan had enough offense to take advantage of of uh, of monmouth's uh, struggles on defense and um you know rob gallic a, a sophomore you know making his first playoff start obviously as a lot of quarterbacks did on saturday uh he was 21 of 43 passing through four interceptions i think if you'd uh if you'd thought uh it, it, if you tried to pick what defense would have the more dominant performance um you know before that game started you probably would not have picked uh, Monmouth, but they certainly came up with the big numbers. And then, uh, of course, Illinois Wesleyan fumbles on its um, on its overtime possession in the third overtime, giving Monmouth the opportunity to uh, walk off with a win. Yeah, that
1: wasn't it. wasn't the prettiest game e- either, Pat. Um, you know, both teams had fumbles and interceptions. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, Monmouth 6 of 17 on third down, Illinois Wesleyan 6 of 20 on third down. So it, it, was, a, it was a great finish. But the but best overall game may have been uh, the Cal Lutheran Linfield game because that I got off to uh, a good start and it, w- it was an exciting game. And then in the fourth quarter, uh, Cal Lutheran makes that a, a 30 to 27 game and actually had a couple of chances to pull off the, the big road upset. Uh, missed a 49 yard field goal and, and still had a chance to get, get the ball back. Take that last drive down into Linfield territory and uh, was attempting a 33-yard field goal. And it was a a, a rush up the middle um, that, that blocked the 33-yard kick, preserved Linfield's win and the opportunity to go on the road and play at Wesley uh, in the second round.
0: Yeah, uh, it, it's a situation where I would name this the best second round game or, you know, uh, almost the best uh, national quarterfinal. You're talking about, uh, you know, teams ranked five and eight in the poll coming into the coming into the playoffs. Uh, you know forced to meet in the first round basically because of geography uh, playing a game which was worthy of uh, being played later in the bracket the one thing that's nice i guess is that a lot more people get to see it because it kicks off at 3 p.m eastern time uh, after you know the uh, after all the uh, east coast games are done and most of the game is still being played after the central time games are done so there was a uh, there was a lot of opportunity for people to see that game and uh, they certainly got to see a thriller
1: yeah, I mean, uh, Cal Lutheran outgained Linfield 444-296 uh, to in the game. And, uh, you know, even though they, they fell behind 20-3 to at one point, you know, they, they got themselves back in the game, had to, gave themselves a couple chances to win it in the fourth quarter. K- kept Linfield off the board, too, in, in the fourth quarter. So, um, you know, it, it was probably a pretty impressive game from start to finish. Um, Cal Lutheran finishes nine and two with both losses to Linfield 24-17 loss earlier in the season, and then a uh, 30-27 loss late in the season. And, and now their, their top 25 finish is probably tied to how far Linfield goes uh, in, in the postseason.
0: You know, none of the three of us making our picks on Friday uh, were surprised by the closest of this game. Uh, the three uh, margins of victory were three, four and five points. So not a surprise there. And um, in that vein, Uh, How about the uh, least surprising upset from Saturday? Yeah, I think the
1: least surprising upset has to be McMurray winning at Trinity. And uh, no disrespect to to Trinity because they played about the game that that we thought they would play. They, uh, you know, McMurray didn't run wild offensively. The the defense, no no longer referring to it as the black flag defense. I did read my. uh, my D3 Road to Salem features Good. Uh, coming into this week so it's' it's, it's that that nickname had petered out sometime in the in the 2000s um, but yeah Trinity played played great on defense and uh, made things difficult for McMurray and but uh, McMurray behind uh, backup quarterback Stephen Warren was able to pull out the 2516 uh, victory. I think the, the one thing that was surprising about it was that it was the McMurray defense uh, you know intercepting uh, Nick McKissick four times and, and holding Trinity to 44 rushing yards. That that may have been the bigger factor in the game.
0: You know, Keith, I thought I saw you uh, on Twitter regretting making that pick. Once you found out that uh, Jake Mullen wasn't going to be playing quarterback.
1: I did because, you know, you feel like a team that's been, you know, powered all season by its offense and, and then lose its quarterback. It kind of brings me back to the, the, the Roy Hampton, you know, incident in the, in the stag ball where, you know, he, he isn't able to play, you know, he, he takes his team all the way to the stag wall and then isn't able to play in the final game. And the, the offense can just never get going, uh, in that 2002 game under Dan displays. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that where if, if McMurray doesn't have a, have a, if, if, if the backup quarterback if Stephen Warren doesn't have a great game and, and Trinity already has this great defense to begin with all of a sudden, you know, what, what, what identity does McMurray have? Are, are they going to be able to put up enough points to win? And it turns out they were able to do it. Um, and again, it, it was their defense I thought that that um, made things tough for Trinity's offense. So even though Trinity had the great defense, they couldn't get anything going in offense and it ended up being, again, a 25-16 final on that
0: one. Uh, my least surprising upset was the uh, St. John Fisher-Johns Hopkins game. I know that... Uh, um, I'm not going to keep referring to our picks, so I'll, I'll uh, close that screen down, actually. It's too tempting to look at that. Um, my thought on why I thought St. John Fisher would... Would uh, would beat Johns Hopkins didn't really turn out to be the reason why it happened so I'm just going to dispense with my reasoning for a little bit but I just thought that um, you know there was something about being tested in the Empire Eight uh, you know seeing what what St John Fisher had seen I know that uh, agreed uh, St John Fisher didn't uh, perform very well against uh, the two teams that they lost to. Um, in the, uh, in the course of the regular season, I would, I would say that, you know, nobody really played very well against Salisbury except for Wesley. Um, but it, it, I, I can't explain away, uh, losing by, uh, 36 to Hobart. So I, I just have to say, I just thought that St. John Fisher was going to come in better tested, uh, given a chance to play. I thought that they would, um, you know, they would kind of seize the opportunity that the, uh, that the selection committee had given them. And I just didn't really know, um. What Johns Hopkins was all about this season, you know, you you get to the point where now the last uh, two years teams are playing nine games in the Centennial Conference, and and Johns Hopkins one non-conference game is at Merchant Marine, and I just didn't really get a good feel for how good Johns Hopkins actually was, and I thought that St. John Fisher was a uh, was a smart upset pick there.
1: Yeah, I mean, Pat, that was the game I was at on Saturday, and and I think the. The physicality uh, of St. John Fisher, especially being able to establish the run early on in that game, their first drive would end up only being a field goal, but it was a 16 play drive. Uh, and then, you know, they force a three and out for Hopkins and then they get the ball back and go on another long field goal drive. And so uh, Fisher actually had the ball for 1345 of, of the first quarter. Saint John Johns Hopkins only had it for a, a minute 15, only ran three plays in the first quarter. So, they, you know, that was a big deal as far as them setting the tone. And you can probably trace that back to the empire eight schedule where you have to be physical. You have to be able to, to match up, um, you know, along the lines with teams like, um, like Salisbury, like that Ithaca, you know, team, which was, wasn't a great team this year, but had a pretty good defense. Um, Alfred, you know, uh, every week it's sort of a test in the same in in the empire. And that, you know, made the committee look good, made your pick look good. Um, because that was a team that came in eight and two, and uh, you know, wasn't wasn't somebody that all of us thought should be in in the field. You know, I, I thought their performance in those those two games, I know margin of victory again, not a criteria, but um, you know, they weren't even really close in their two losses, and, and it was hard to to justify them being in. But they did a good job of taking advantage of it, sort of internalizing that um, you know, that that disrespect, that doubt that people had about them, and, and turning that into motivation. And they came out and, and played a really physical game from the start. Uh, part of that was, you know, we talked about injuries affecting, um, you know, McMurray and some of the some and Hobart uh, injury did did affect Johns Hopkins, missing uh, one of their best defensive players, and that was that kind of made their defense um, made it built on on speed. They were trying to go with speed instead of being physical, and uh, it, it helped them out. And in, in some drives at some point, once they settled down, but but again, Saint John Fisher was able to do not uh, whatever it wanted, but it was you know was converting on third down. Uh, early in that game, and then the the uh, one of the big stories from that game too is that once Saint John Fisher has established the run, their running option, and um, you know getting the ball, and, you know quick quick screens to uh, to Ryan Kramer, one of their more talented receivers, and just getting him out in space and letting him run with it. Um, they do that the whole first two quarters, and then um, Ryan Kramer, the quarterback. Uh, I think I meant Ryan Schmidt probably when I was talking about wide receivers. But Ryan Kramer, the quarterback, gets hurt, uh, has a hip flexor on a run play down near the goal line. Uh, Ahmed Hassanian comes into the game. His very first pass is a touch pass, back corner of the end zone, fade, touchdown, gave him the confidence. And then the whole second half, St. John Fisher has a passing offense. So one of the things that, that Jim Margraf said in the post game from that game was that Johns Hopkins finally gets a read on what St. John Fisher is trying to do. They start figuring out how to stop it. They go in at halftime thinking, OK, we know how to stop all these option plays now. And then St. John Fisher has a completely different offense in the second half.
0: You know, there were uh, at least four quarterbacks who came off the bench uh, and made uh, either a start or finished a, a key game or played in a key spot uh, for their teams. Um, and I would have to think that uh, you know, just the, for the reasons that you just stated, um, the the best guy off the bench on Saturday in terms of quarterbacks would have to be Ahmad Hassanian. I, I liken it to, um, you know, being called on to pinch hit against a, you know, a, a guy throwing 98 mile an hour heat in the eighth inning of a close ball game in baseball. Yeah, I mean
1: because. With the baseball analogy, you come, you, you over several innings, you, you start to figure out this pitcher, and then the closer comes in and, and throws a completely different, you know, set of pitches. And, and that's kind of the way it was for, for St. John Fisher. Uh, as soon as Ahmed Hussaini came in, they were able to go down in the field and they hit a big, I think, 52 yard pass play in the second, in the third quarter, you know, that got them out of Johns Hopkins territory. And uh, that, that was a big deal for them. And, and, and the other factor in that game, too, was St. John Fisher basically said okay hopkins is four four wide receiver set five wide receiver set they're they're also missing one of their best wide receivers actually going into this game um but but they still were able to run four and five five wides and and saint john fisher said look we're just going to drop eight rush three and keep everything in front of us and what happened is, is hewitt tomlin tomlin and i think um you know, he saw it and, and and still had that, you know, that belief over the course of the season he's able to thread the needle and, and and make all the pass plays he wants to. And he threw into double coverage on a couple of the interceptions, ended up throwing five picks on the day, and had only thrown five interceptions all season. So certainly wasn't his best game. And and I know um Johns Hopkins, you know, would have liked to perform better. It's it's kind of crazy for a team to have this 10 and 0 season and then phew, it's it's gone in a flash. But uh, that's the way the playoffs are. You know, 31 teams are going to go out of this thing with a loss, and and one team will be left standing. And so a lot of great seasons ended on Saturday. 16 great seasons ended on Saturday in the playoffs. Others obviously ended in uh, ECAC games. But 16 great seasons ended, and a lot of them, you know, ended in in unceremonious fashion.
0: So I liked uh, Hisanian's performance. Who's your uh, pick for best quarterback off the bench on Saturday?
1: I mean, I probably would go with Stephen Warren. Um, you know, to be able to, to lead McMurray in, in that game. You know, again, we, it was a little bit of uncertainty during the week on, on whether Jake Mullen um, was going to be able to play. He, he had a parse, partially torn meniscus. Um, so that's what uh, that's what kept him out. And, and Warren's stats weren't overwhelming. You know, he ran for one touchdown and, and threw for another. But. Um, it's a team that was – it's a high-powered offense, and then they just asked him to come in, you know, kind of manage the game, let the defense do what it does, and and, and not turn it over. And I thought he he uh, did a nice job for that for for McMurray. But, Pat, you mentioned some of the, the you know, the teams that had to play with their backups. Hobart, you, we'd already mentioned. You know, here's another one that, that didn't have to – Matt Pilato, not necessarily a backup for Mount Union, but someone who, who shared time at quarterback during the season, and uh, he came in and, and led Mount Union to a big win on Saturday as well.
0: Yep. Uh, Hobart uh, Kelly Olney uh, is the, was the guy who got the start. He was 16-37. Luke Magnus, we mentioned him uh, on the site over the course of the week, uh, came in at the for the last three quarters of the game last week for Thomas Moore, got the start on Saturday. It was 12-21 passing for 110 yards, but uh, had a little trouble running the ball. He uh, Got sacked three times at 23 carries for 24 yards, and that is something that uh, Thomas Moore wants its quarterbacks to do. Um, let's see. Uh, best moment to stop the highlight film. And, and from that, I mean, you know, there's a spot at which your season has reached its zenith. So let's uh, turn off the record button.
1: I think this one probably is going to have to be center. In the sense that uh, you know they're in the postseason for the first time in 90 years, I believe is is, is the number on that. Uh, got to play a home game, so the, the home crowd is there. They're excited, and and uh, they surged to a 20 to nothing lead against Hampton Sydney, and then uh, and then that game turned into a straight shootout. You know it was 50, uh, it was 48, 41 at one point in the, in the fourth quarter. Uh, center twice twice led by 20 points. They led 20 to zero. They led 41, 20, and both times Hampton Sydney stormed back. Uh, Travis Lane, you know, got that passing game open and and was hitting uh, Sean Cavanaugh and Kyle Vance. Both those guys went over 100 yards receiving. And and Hampton-Sydney just, uh, you know, I guess too little too late for them. They were able to, uh, you know, roll up a bunch of offense and and close down those those 20-point leads a couple times and and make it interesting. But, um, you know, they weren't able to pull it out. And so center has this, you know, basically – dream game in a lot of ways uh first playoff game they get the game at home uh you know they weren't a conference champion they score 51 points and then they get to turn around next week and travel to mount union where a lot of d3 dreams go to die
0: yeah and if you if you're giving up 41 points to hampton sydney which don't get me wrong uh is one of the you know prolific offenses in division three over the course of the uh, past several years um it's going to be a bit of a struggle i would say at Mount Union. Um, the uh, uh i think my best moment to stop the highlight film is about 12 seconds into the St. Scholastica St. Thomas game when i, I would think and i haven't seen a record on this i i put a query into uh the NCAA stats people but uh i have to think one of the fastest safeties in the history of college football happened on saturday when uh, St. Scholastica took a, a two nothing lead on uh, on St. Thomas on a uh, a kickoff that went over the uh over the uh, return man's head, was, was barely tipped. I think the rule suggests, and the, uh, the officials uh, suggested this apparently on the sidelines afterwards, that this should not have been considered uh, a muffed kick, that uh, St. Thomas never had possession of it outside the end zone and perhaps shouldn't have been called a safety. But at that point, uh, it was 2 nothing. St. Scholastica, which brought a lot of fans down from Duluth. It's a, a two-and-a-half-hour drive down for the, uh, for the first playoff game uh, in the program's history. Uh, you know, they were riding pretty high at that point and they, uh, and they rode that momentum for a, a little bit. I mean, uh, St. Thomas, uh, did come back and, and scored, uh, you know, pretty soon on its next possession after the free kick, you know, they, uh, they, uh, they got the ball back pretty quickly, drove 85 yards, got a touchdown to go up six to two, but the game was still close for a long time. It was, uh, 2 as late as twenty-five seconds before the uh, half. So they rode that momentum for a while, but uh, weren't able to uh continue it as uh St. Thomas kind of pulled away uh, heavily in the third quarter of that game.
1: And and Pat, you mentioned the you know the the fan contingent that came down from Saint Scholastica had a lot to cheer about this season. That's a, another ten and season like Johns Hopkins um, that that ends in the first round. Uh, and, you know another great season that that was really one for the ages. It was, was Dubuque, you know, nine and one first conference championship since what 1979 or 81, something like that. And then, uh, you know, to to get blown out in the first round, it's just a tough way for all those good feelings to end. So, so yeah, if you're, if you're cutting the highlight film for St. Scholastica, you cut it uh, at at the two nothing lead at St. Thomas, you know, put, put some, put a snow shot in there and then uh, say, what a great season we had. Um. You know, it's kind of eye-opening when you look at the final score and, and you see uh, 48-2 because two is not a, not a familiar score that that, uh, that teams end up with very often in uh, in, in football games. Uh, what was the most eye-opening stat from, from Saturday, Pat?
0: I, I think my most eye-opening stat is not actually something that shows up on the scoreboard, but uh, I look at Wesley, uh, 13 penalties for 157 yards uh, is the box score I'm looking at. And it's, um, you know, you, you do your math. Uh, if you get thirteen personal fouls, that's one hundred and ninety-five yards, uh, and that you know that's a, that's the max at this point. So uh, you're you're averaging over uh, over ten yards of penalty. And I know that one of the uh, one of the knocks on Wesley uh, during the course of, of this run, where they've been to the national semifinals four times in the past seven seasons, is that they they play a little bit undisciplined. But that's a that's a lot of penalty yardage, even for uh, even with that already uh, in your mind. Yeah, 157
1: is really a lot. You know, you see every now and again 12 for 100 or something like that, but 150 yards, you can't cost yourself uh, that many yards in a game, and that's probably part of the reason why that game was so close. Uh, my most eye-opening stat, Salisbury. You know, once again, a great rushing game, 568 yards rushing against Western New England, 12.1, 12.2, yeah, 12.1 yards a carry um, as a team. You know, every now and again, you look at the box score, and there's one guy who had a long run, and he and he has 12.1 yards per carry. Salisbury on the day, 12.1 per carry. Uh, didn't you know Dan Griffin didn't have to pass much, didn't have to complete a whole lot of passes, and and that may change this week when Salisbury faces Kane, uh, a team who's who's um, you know been opportunistic on defense the past couple weeks. But that is that's a real eye-opening number, and there were some eye-opening rushing numbers in the first round, you know, we mentioned the North Central having 411 rushing yards, two backs over hundred yards. Um, Mary Harden Baylor had 336 rushing yards, scored the first 31 points against Redlands. And Redlands only had 360 yards of total offense. And Mary Harden Baylor has 336 rushing yards. And I, I mentioned those stats just to put in context, how ridiculous Salisbury having 568 rushing yards was on Saturday.
0: I was just looking back at Wesley five, personal fouls. One of them was uh, was offsetting a pair of pass interference penalties, uh, drive up the penalty yardage there as well. Um, on the Salisbury game, Keith, uh, I know that uh, Western New England likened Salisbury to uh, Springfield in terms of the fact that both run the triple option, but I think that you know we knew this year, certainly at the very least from the result of that head-to-head game, that uh, this year Salisbury is head-shoulders and probably torso above uh, Springfield the way they're running their offense this season.
1: You know that's what I really took away from the the Salisbury Wesley game is that you know we've had times where you know I don't know if you remember this Pat but a several few years ago um, Huntingdon came out to play Wesley for the first time and we asked Mike Turk who was a former head coach at Troy Division Division One school and he said you know Wesley has a couple guys that could have played for me at Troy so that's the kind of talent we're talking about when you get to you know the Mountain Unions the White Waters you know, Linfield, North Central, Wesley, you got a couple guys on each of those teams that, that, you know, could play division one, one aa you know, th- th- those kind of talents. And, and I think Salisbury is that kind of team this year. They matched up with Wesley in that game. Uh, you know, physically they, they weren't, they weren't pushed around on the field at all. You know, they, they weren't, they've done most of the pushing around in, in their, uh, time in the empire eight this season so you know salisbury I, I think this might be one of those rare teams that if they get in a in a uh um, they're able to win this week and they get in a brawl with with whitewater they might be able to hang in there you know because they're, they're that physical and um you know that's you you can compare them to to springfield but they're they're doing it on a different level you know i, I remember talking to sherm wood the salisbury coach for uh, around the nation um i think it was last year and we we're talking about running the triple off it Option offense. And one of the things he was saying is he, the type of lineman they recruit, a lot of the triple option teams say, well, we're looking for smaller linemen. Um, guys who, you know, the other schools are, are passing over. You know, we look for guys in the 220, 240 range, but they're quick and they can pull. And so that makes this triple option offense go. Sherman, Sherman Wood said to heck with that. He wants linemen that are borderline 1AA guys. You know, wow. guys that are looking at Salisbury and maybe looking at, you know, with Richmond or William and or whatever other schools out here. He, I mean, he's he's looking for guys that maybe slip through the cracks or or something like that. He wants big, strong offensive linemen, and that's what he that's what they're going to have to be able to do. They're going to have to be able to be physical with teams uh, as they move on in these playoffs, and uh, they're they're going to face teams that are that are bigger and stronger than than Western New England was.
0: There was I just remember looking at the average yards per carry for the top four or five guys in the box score for Salisbury and if you didn't know better you'd think you were looking at the uh, yards per reception because there were so many guys who were in double digits you know bing 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 all right in a row uh, including the including the quarterback who had a uh, another great game on Saturday and it's just uh, I mean obviously uh, you know it'll be a different challenge against Kane this week and we will certainly talk about the uh, eight second round games coming up uh, as we're just beyond the midway point here of our podcast. I'm assuming it's going to be an hour. We never really know how it's going to end up uh, <laughs> when we start this thing. True. But that's always the goal anyway, and we're, uh, we've are we been pretty good at, uh, A, getting to an hour, because sometimes early in the season it's tough to do, and B, keeping it under an hour, because this time of year, that's really difficult. Um I want to talk about some individual numbers uh, in terms of you know best individual performance. We've we've talked about we've talked about this guy a lot, and we've talked about a little bit about his performance on Saturday already. But uh, just to kind of run down, for example, what Michael Zweifel did in his uh, in his final game in a uh, in a college football uniform: 13 catches uh, for 135 yards and a touchdown for Dubuque, which in and of itself. Is uh, is not so bad. That's pretty impressive. And I'm just gonna keep scrolling down the rest of the page until I find out that oh, by the way, he also led the team in tackles with seven of them, six solo. Uh, playing a cornerback, I saw uh, you know run through the play-by-play, and he's uh, he's making tackles early in the game. They knew uh, that they would need him out on the field uh, pretty much right away. I saw watching uh, North Central's highlight video that uh, you know he had a a uh, a key tackle, uh, that at least temporarily saved a touchdown, um, uh, had, uh, uh, back at the, uh, at the four yard line uh, North Central did eventually get into the end zone, but, uh, he certainly, you know, you talk about a, a basketball player, for example, filling a stat line if he has, uh, you know, four or five rebounds, a, f- a few steals, a handful of assists and, you know, 10 to 12 points. Um, it doesn't really work that way. Cause you don't play both ways in football for, for the most part.
1: Yeah. They, you know, That's a tremendous performance by Zweifel, and as much as we talk about him as an offensive talent, you know, to be your defensive leading tackler certainly stands out. The the only thing individually that that sort of came close to that for me uh, among the games on Saturday was uh, was Colin Tobin from. Uh, St. Thomas and Pat you know you probably could do a little bit better job than me of setting the scene for this game where it was it was snowy uh, you know I don't want to say it was a horrible scene because it, it makes for great pictures and great memories of a football game but you know to play in a game like that when it's cold and it's messy and you know you pretty much you, you take the passing game off the table you take a lot of those quick developing plays where you're you are you know guys like Fritz Walvogel for example for St. Thomas you know if, if you got snow on the ground you can't really cut you know he he's not as dangerous as he would be. So St. Thomas just just leaned on Colin Tobin on on Saturday. Thirty one carries, two hundred six rushing yards, three touchdowns, and uh, you know that's one way to to, to get in the snow and, and get out of there with a the win because we've seen over the years weather sometimes can can neutralize these high power teams, and then all of a sudden you get a pretty good playoff team or a team that 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 built on defense or something like that in a game. You know, I think back a few years ago. Johns Hopkins playing Wesley in the rain you know a, a real strong Wesley team and end up being a 12 nothing game the, the weather can can neutralize that so St. Thomas uh just leaned on Colin Tobin gave him the ball 31 times and, and said let's get out of the snow with with a first round victory and move on to the next round so that was a pretty impressive uh individual performance for me
0: I guess the good thing is that it was a dry snow so it didn't really affect the uh the, the handling of the football it didn't get all slushy and, and that sort of thing it was a really dry day um you know, Tobin for the most part got almost all of those two hundred and six yards pretty much going straight ahead. Uh you know, there's as you mentioned, not a whole lot of opportunity for a wide receiver to cut. Uh similarly for a running back, he uh he I I think he Tobin is a is a patient kind of guy who who waits for holes to open up and then uh, runs through them uh rather than, you know, trying to do stuff too fancy. At least on Saturday he was, obviously when the when the field is dry. Uh things are a little bit different. So uh, yeah, there's a, certainly an, an impressive uh, performance for him on Saturday. Uh, just under seven yards a carry. Uh, he also uh, caught a screen pass. They didn't throw a whole lot. And I think the one thing that was missing out of St. Thomas's uh, usual offensive arsenal from Saturday is that Dakota Tracy will usually uh, pull the ball down and run, but he, uh, he only ran the ball one time on Saturday because... You know his game is really trying to get to the outside, and and he did. He got the he got a, a touchdown run into the corner, and that was the uh, sum total of his rushing on Saturday in that uh, win against Saint Scholastica. Um, how about the other side of the ball? Uh, best defensive effort. Yeah,
1: I thought, you know, before we move on and talk about the second round, we have to acknowledge some of these defenses in the first round. And, and as we, you know, mentioned some of these outstanding numbers, 568 yards rushing and all these crazy numbers, there were some teams, uh, who, who got their victories with defense. And I, I think probably the top of that list, um, you have to recognize Wabash, what they've done defensively this season. You know, Illinois College comes in to the playoffs. From a weaker conference but with a with a freshman quarterback who's been able you know to, to open it up this season and, and and get the ball down the field and, and and the blue boys have been a been a high-powered offense um you know the entire season and and if you read the the post-game story on our website you know, michael bates is just in awe of, of the wabash defense and in particularly of uh of cj gum the linebacker who um You know, he's the quote from him is basically saying how gum just controls everything he has. He has the plays on his arm. He calls out all the plays as they're happening. And uh, they they diagnosed, I guess, just about everything Illinois College was uh, was doing on Saturday, because even though that ended up being a 38-20 final, looks like it might have been a back and forth game that Wabash pulled away at the end. It was really a 38-6 game at at one point in the third quarter. uh, Wabash limits uh, Illinois College to 29 rushing yards. 222 yards passing, you know, so they're they're about uh, 250 yards under their their normal average. Illinois College was averaging 499 yards of of offense in that game. And, uh, you know, when we do get to talk about these round two games, Wabash will have to bring that defense again because uh, North Central's coming.
0: I have a couple of uh, defensive efforts I wanted to highlight from Saturday, one of which uh, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, already about what McMurray did. Uh, defensively on Saturday. But uh, one of the things that they did was, uh, uh, in addition to the four interceptions, they held Trinity to just 44 rushing yards. And and Trinity was a team that, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the season now averages 156 yards a game. So when you factor into that, their average was a a little bit over that and and it was dragged down on Saturday. I thought that McMurray did a a great job defensively on Saturday. But uh, I also have to uh, point out what Wisconsin Whitewater did uh, in, in its first round game. You know, they uh, first three possessions for Albion, uh, one of them ends in an interception, and then uh, Wisconsin Whitewater, 11 yards later, is in the end zone for a uh, Lavelle Coppedge touchdown. Uh, it's something like three plays later, uh, another interception uh, by Whitewater on defense, and a 13-yard drive for a short touchdown. And then on the very next play from scrimmage, uh, Albion, uh, as the... Uh, fumbles the ball, has it uh, knocked away in a, another quick touchdown drive, and all of a sudden, bang, bang, bang! Uh, you've got Noah Tim interception, Greg Arnold interception, and uh, Anthony Dowry forced fumble, and they all lead to touchdowns, and it's twenty-one nothing at nine twenty of the first quarter.
1: Yeah, and you talk about coming into a game. You know taking the other team's will and and all week albion's probably building up the fact that hey we got it we, we can play loose we go in there we got nothing to lose right we're, we're they're the big dogs they're expected to win the national championship or at least get back to salem and nobody's expecting us to do anything so we could go in there and play wild play crazy And, you know, six, seven minutes into the game, Whitewater has just stomped on their dreams in in all honesty. And you do have to give credit to the Whitewater defense for setting that up because let's put this in perspective. Their first um, three drives – all end in uh, all end with with Lavelle Cappage two yard touchdown runs. None of the drives was longer than 15 yards. So they're up 21-0 with three short touchdown drives. They had they you know had barely had to do anything because their defense keeps putting them in great position. And uh, you know if, if we're mentioning turnovers, I think we'd be remiss not to mention um, yeah. St. John Fisher again with those interceptions and then Kane six turnovers on Saturday against Christopher Newport. That's uh, the second week in a row. They forced six turnovers to beat a, uh, an eight win team. They did it to win the NJAC championship the week before against uh, Montclair state. So, you know, if Kane's playing opportunistic, uh, you know, five interceptions on Saturday, I I can almost guarantee they won't get five interceptions against Salisbury because, you know, (laughs) Salisbury might not even throw five passes to be quite honest to, unless they have to. So, um, um. that that opportunistic defense, you know, really propelled Kane and propelled St. John Fisher. Clearly it propelled um Whitewater and uh, you know, defense for for Wabash, and I thought North Central too holding uh holding Dubuque to thirteen points was, was pretty amazing. So, you know, a lot a lot of championships is, still are won with defense and uh, we saw some outstanding defensive performances on Saturday.
0: And I would be really remiss if I had said all those things about the Whitewater defense and didn't also mention that uh, Jerem Borland uh, returned uh, a blocked punt, 56 yards for a touchdown, and also returned a fumble, 54 yards for a touchdown in the uh, second and third quarter, respectively, uh, on on defense for Whitewater. And I have one more, uh, I would not be remiss, uh, note on my sheet of paper, and you mentioned uh, Michael Bates for Illinois College. You know, that's a guy who's a freshman quarterback whose name we'll probably be hearing A a few more times, he may well be the the best quarterback in the league after Alex Taney's uh, career ends, whether it's this week coming up against St. Thomas in the second round, or if they advance and play further down the bracket. The the game's coming up this week, of course, if you don't have a bracket in front of you. Uh, Wisconsin Whitewater hosts Franklin. Uh, Kane is at Salisbury. Uh, St. Thomas hosts Monmouth. St. John Fisher at Delaware Valley. Uh, McMurray's at Mary Harden Baylor. Linfield is at Wesley. Wabash hosts North Central, and Center goes to Mount Union. And uh, starting in the top left uh, with Whitewater Franklin, um, you know, obviously these teams have a, a not a long history, but a, a very recent history. They played, of course, in the first round of the playoffs last year. Uh, they played in uh, the in September this season as well. So these teams. Are certainly in a position to know each other very well, but is that enough to, uh, you know, keep Franklin, uh, you know, more competitive in this game than they were the uh, the last time they met?
1: Well, certainly that's the goal for Franklin. You know, I, I know they were real disappointed with the, with the forty five zero loss back in September. You know, they were they were excited that they they played them pretty well for for a portion of the game last year. I think 52-21 was the final, yeah. but it was a good game at a certain point in that game in the playoffs last year they were able to
0: into the fourth quarter yeah
1: right so they were able to hang with them uh last year and then i know they came into the the regular season game this year thinking hey if we can hang with them again and then you know play our best game uh you know maybe we'll have a chance to pull off the upset and and you know you You may not always win that game, but but you want to at least show well. And I know that that Franklin played at home, played in front of their home fans, and to lose forty five nothing was a big deal. So going into this week, they want um, to look. They want this game to look a little bit more like the the playoff game last year, and a lot less like the regular season game this year. And I think that could be an advantage, somewhat, in in the sense that um, you know they've seen Whitewater, they know what they do. The the team. you can't say they won't necessarily be intimidated by them again, because in the back of your mind, you always know, well, these guys beat us forty forty five zero 45, zero early in the season, but they also know what they're getting into. They know Franklin knows that if they play well, uh, you know, at least all the guys are on the team last year. They know if they play well, they they can hang with them. And, and the other thing that, that may play a, a little bit of a, a role for Franklin is that, you know, they were, they were kind of breaking in a new quarterback back in September. And now they've played 11 games w- with that quarterback and they are, uh, you know, going into game 12 as the team with nothing to lose because everybody expects Whitewater to win.
0: Yeah, uh, Franklin last year, 40 of 72 passing, of course, was Kyle Ray in that, uh, in that uh, first round loss. He threw for 373 yards. Uh, Whitewater held Franklin to minus 11 yards rushing in the uh, regular season game this year. You know, similar numbers, uh, only 40 yards rushing for Franklin. Nobody is able to run on Whitewater right now.
1: And then that's, you know, that's how they beat you. They, they run on you and they lean on you the, with their big offensive line the whole entire game. And then they put it away in the fourth quarter and then they have such a great defensive line that they take you out of a lot of the things that you want to do. They're able to stop the run, but you know, we also talked a lot about this last year. I believe that their linebackers are sort of, I don't want to say free to roam because I know they play within a disciplined scheme, but they whitewater always has great linebackers. And part of the reason is because they're able to get a rush with, with just the four down linemen. And so those linebackers, uh, you know, they're not getting beat up the whole game. They're, they they basically can stay within their assignments because they they're don't they not always cleaning up the messes that, that, that the defensive linemen leave for them. Um, Johnny West is the quarterback for Franklin. I, I mentioned him a couple of times earlier, but I didn't say his name. So I figured I better throw that in there before we move on to Kane and Salisbury.
0: Yep. Yeah, and uh, this year, it's been a little bit easier to run on Whitewater. They've given up 83 yards. Uh, a game on the ground last year it was under fifty a game going into the uh, going into the postseason. So Kane and Salisbury, uh, you know uh, Kane is the team, of course, you know they have the common opponent in Wesley. Uh, I would caution people against making a pick solely on the outcome of that game because, Uh, You know, one of those games is in September, the other was was in late October, one's a rivalry game, and things can happen quite uh, a lot between September and October, and then let alone on Thanksgiving weekend, which is what we look at here in week 13, the second round of the playoffs.
1: Yeah, well, the thing about the Thanksgiving weekend, week two of these playoffs, is that um, all the games are on campus throughout the playoffs except for the Stag Bowl, and that, that can be a big advantage to certain teams, especially teams that draw well. Uh, you know, Whitewater is one that comes to mind, uh, and, and you know, St. Thomas probably draw pretty well throughout the playoffs, as long as, as long as they're in it and at home, uh, Wesley gets a boisterous crowd, you know, the number is not huge, but um, this is the weekend where you don't have the students on campus. And so if the students are leaving on Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon, you know, they're not, they're not going to, and they don't come back to class till Monday, they're not going to come on campus for Saturday any game. So it could be a very uh, sparse crowd on, on Saturdays for this game and that, that it, can be interesting, um, you know. the 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 thing to to me in the Kane Salisbury matchup is, um, well, there's a there's a I guess there's a bunch of X's and O's things, but but I guess we should talk about the the Wesley result really quickly. Is that you know, as you mentioned, Pat, that the Kane um, went over Wesley first week of the season, and and as the old saying goes, you know, you, you see a big difference between the team first between their first and second game. So that was that was uh, I guess it was actually Wesley second game. Uh, because they played these Texas Baptists. But um you know, they had that 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 sort of season defining uh, incident that happened with them, where the son, the offensive coordinator for Wesley, um, you know had cardiac arrest and, and sort of, you know, all the guys rallied around Ben Knapp and, and, and sort of matured. And, and it's not just the storyline that we're playing up. I mean, this is what people in the program really are saying, that, that Wesley's playing inspired football now. And so Salisbury was, was one of their first games after that happened, and, and they really did play a great game against Salisbury. So uh, it's going to be hard to compare results. As far as the two teams, you know, Kane has sort of li- lived and died um, the past couple weekends, forcing all these turnovers. I don't know how they're going to do that this week against Salisbury uh, unless they're just able to strip the ball because Salisbury, such, it's such a quick hit offense and, and it's a ball control offense. And, and, you know, you got guys who, who get 10, 15 carries a game and, and they're drilled over and over again, hang on to the ball, you know, uh, run, 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 go down, you know, so I. I don't know how, how Kane's going to get those turnovers. Kane's going to have to 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 put up some offense on their own. But but the the Cougars have been a little bit more like chameleons this year. You know, whatever it takes to win a game, they'll figure out how to do it. And and, and one thing that stands out about Kane is that they've beaten five teams. I think that um, that have seven or more wins this season, and nobody in the playoffs can say that.
0: Moving on to the uh, the Delaware Valley bracket, the uh, other semifinal, the one not involving um, the one not involving Delaware Valley is uh, Monmouth going to St. Thomas. We mentioned earlier, of course, that uh, um, Alex Tanny keeping his season alive. Remember, this was a uh, uh, this was a matchup that happened in the first round of the two thousand nine playoffs. St. Thomas took the uh, trip down to Illinois uh, came away with a 43-21 win I know that um you know obviously Alex Tanney is still there a lot of the things around him have changed in the last two seasons since 2009 um doesn't have the the uh, the senior-laden offensive line that the Scots had in front of him that season. He doesn't have quite the, the weapons uh, in terms of wide receivers. But one thing they have uh, this year that they haven't had in the past is they have a running game in the form of Trey Yoakum as something that uh, you know, St. Thomas is going to have to scheme for it and, and take seriously. It's a legitimate part of the offense.
1: So the other thing Monmouth has is a lot of confidence. Come in, beating a CCIW team, which you know in that part of the country, um, the CCIW is sort of—I don't want to say God because that's not the right way to say it—but you know what I mean. Those, those, the, those, those are the power teams: the Wheaton, the North Central, the Illinois Wesleyan are the power teams in Illinois, and they kind of look down a little bit, football-wise, anyway, on on uh, on the Midwest Conference. And for Mammoth to get that win over a CCIW team, like, yeah, well, you know, if you could beat a team from the CCIW, no reason you can't beat a, a team from the Mayak. Um, you know, St. Thomas. I think has what's been termed a pretty great defense. You know, the question is, uh, can they match up with, uh, with, uh, with Monmouth and is mom going to be more than, than just Alex Taney. I mean, I know that, that he's developed a, a real great go-to receiver this year. And Pat, you mentioned the running game, but uh, but you know, they, they still going to live and die with, with how well their quarterback plays.
0: Yeah. And that'll certainly be the, the question that uh, we'll have to come up. I, we mentioned, I mentioned earlier uh, about, Illinois Wesleyan's offense maybe not being uh, as much of a challenge to Monmouth as, uh, as its defense was. And I said that specifically to set up this later as well. And St. Thomas is certainly much more diverse, uh, more experienced because they've got seniors in a lot of key positions uh, or, or, or guys who have started for multiple seasons. Uh, and they're certainly a, a, in a better position offensively to, uh, to take advantage of where Monmouth struggles on defense when it does.
1: Yeah, and and, and that's, a, you know, every, every time we talk about a great offense going against a great defense and how that's going to be the highlighted matchup, there's also the flip side of, you know, the the great defense's offense and the, and the great offense's defense, if that makes any sense, if you can follow that at home. St. Thomas probably is a little bit, you know, probably one of the more balanced teams in, in the country, if you think about it. They've got a great defense. They've, you know, been able to... Uh, put up points on offense you mentioned the leadership the Dakota Tracy at quarterback Colin Tobin at running back and then Fritz Waldvogel being sort of the all around playmaker for, for St. Thomas uh they that's a lot of ways they they can uh they can put pressure on the Monmouth defense and and uh for the Scots to win they're gonna to have to get some points out of their offense. The offense is the unit that carries that team, uh, but they're gonna to have to get another great defensive effort. And they and they really did play pretty well, you know, against Illinois Wesleyan, 17 points in regulation. It's gonna to have to be another game like that, you know, to keep the scoring down against St. Thomas for them to stay in it, because, you know, Tanny's not gonna get off against St. Thomas like he does against some of the teams, you know, putting up 50 points and 500 yards of offense uh, in, in the Midwest Conference. St. Thomas is gonna make that difficult.
0: St. John Fisher and Delaware Valley meeting again in the second round, just like they did in two thousand four, right?
1: Yeah, that, that was a great game in two thousand four. You know, those teams at that point in time were two of the, the both having these cardiac seasons where they just couldn't lose, um, and, and that game ended up coming down to to a situation where uh, I think uh, Del Val could have kicked it. Or, or had a chance to, to kick it, but it went for it and, and scored in the, in the final eight seconds. And, and I'll, um, you know, be digging into the, the history of that game. Cause I'm going to write about it a little bit uh, for, for the site this week, but um, ended up being a 26, 20 final uh, if I remember correctly. And I, and, yep. and asked, um coach Paul Vosberg about that game, you know, a- after the game on Saturday and he smiled and he had good memories of it. It was one of the, uh, you know, Great playoff memories. When you look back at these things after after the hurt goes away, you know, the team that loses, you remember these games that stand out. You know, there's 31 games in this whole playoff bracket, and there's only a few each year that whether you were there or whether you weren't there or whatever, that, that you really remember, and that was one of those games. So St. John Fisher and Del DelVal have the history. They're also competing to be the last, um, I would say, the last true East team to advance, you know, Salisbury. And Kane, I guess, are well, Kane would be a true East team too. I was gonna say Salisbury's technically in the East because they're part of the Empire Eight, but they've, you know, been identified with the South region for so long. Um, that, that I sort of, you know, can consider them that. But uh, St. John Fisher, you know, upstate New York, Delaware Valley, Pennsylvania representing the Mac, those are the the your, uh, you know, kind kind of having the last Eastern playoff. And then the, and then the next round is where this is all gonna get interesting. Uh, you know, geographically, the quarterfinals on on this side of the, the bracket, again, if you're looking at it uh, on, on your computer screen as you listen to this, St. Thomas, Monmouth, the St. Thomas Monmouth winner is either going to have to travel uh, to Delaware Valley or, or, you know, St. John Fisher may have to go out to St. Thomas, depending on how it works out. So the, the, the travel is going to get interesting on that side of the bracket um, in the quarterfinals. It's, on this other side of the bracket, it's already interesting.
0: It is, and uh, let's talk about the Mary Harden-Baylor-McMurray game. And since we didn't um, talk about Mary Harden-Baylor-Redlands at all, we should make sure we uh, uh, spend a little extra time on this game. Not that we need any encouragement, because this is another uh, rematch of a, a particularly interesting game from earlier in the season.
1: And we'll be writing about that during the week on the site. Just the uh, you know we've probably mentioned it in half the podcasts we've done this season. Yeah, this game I think that, you're right. Actually, that, you know you know that that McMurray's played against Mary harden Baylor, where Mary harden Baylor controls the game into the you know early in the second half. There's a lightning delay. Actually, I then, think it's it's uh,
0: it's in the second quarter is when the lightning quarter, strikes. Second
1: quarter, sorry. So the lightning strikes in the second quarter, and then after the lightning delay, which is about an hour long um McMurray you know controls the game they have a chance to win the game with a two-point conversion Mary Harden Baylor comes up with a great stop and at that point in the season pat we thought this is a maybe a subpar Mary Harden Baylor team and we figured this could be one of their down years you know they might not even make the playoffs they might struggle to get through the the American Southwest turns out that was more of the coming out party for McMurray uh this is one of the great Mary Harden Baylor teams from what we've seen uh you know you, you go to that that um first round playoff game on Saturday against a Redlands team that was perfectly capable of beating North Central early in the season. They really never never had a chance. Uh Redlands did against Mary Harden Baylor. Uh Mary Harden Baylor scored the first 31 points in that game, um ended up winning 34-13, so it looked a lot closer than it was. Uh 336 rushing yards as we mentioned um Darryl Bailey the quarterback had 112 of those rushing yards. I believe so, you know, effectively executing the option and then uh, you know when he's able to, to mix in a little bit of pass it just makes him that much better but uh, but the, the defense too played a great game uh, for, for Mary harden Baylor and they're gonna have to play another great game even if McMurray has to go with uh, with Stephen Warren again as at quarterback which I'm, I'm probably that's a fairly safe assumption at this
0: point. Quick sidebar um, you, you mentioned that uh, and this is a great point you, we don't know when, when two teams face off each other, uh, against each other we don't know what of uh, what is because uh, of team a and what is because of team b and so we didn't know we thought that you know maybe it was because mary Hardin baylor wasn't as good this year it turns out mcmurray was really good um i, I you hear it all the time this time of year especially uh, teams or fans especially will come out after a first round playoff loss and say well we weren't ourselves today we played our worst game et cetera, et cetera." well you know let's be honest with you how much of that is because you played a really good team you know how much of it was well we didn't play very well you didn't play very well because you were playing against someone who was really good
1: yeah and, and you know the, the game I was at on Saturday was a prime example of that Johns Hopkins you know, was it the high-powered offense that had been all season? But you can also make the argument that they play in the Centennial Conference and they don't play anybody as strong as St. John Fisher in the Empire 8. So that's certainly the, the possibility, uh, you know, with Redlands, Mary hardin Baylor. I, I don't know if it was necessarily with, with Trinity. They, they'd been fairly well tested uh, against McMurray. But, you know, you don't see a, a, a offense like McMurray has where, where they spread it out and, and just try to go down the field on you. So that, that's new for, for everyone. And the same way we talk about this Wesley-Salisbury game, saying, you know, that that Wesley is the only team that beat Salisbury and really the only team that stayed close to to Salisbury in in a game, um, you know, going all the way back to the Ithaca game early in the season. Um, Part of the reason Wesley and Salisbury were able to stay close to each other is because Wesley knows them so well. They play every year. They know what each other likes to do. they, They, you know, they recruit. To beat each other you know they, they, they're matching they're trying to match up physically with one another and i think uh there's a little bit of that subtext to the mary harden baylor mcmurray game uh, in, in the sense that if you it, it, before mcmurray knew it was going to move to division two they're building this program uh, they want to be competitive they're competitive in a lot of their other sports so they want to be competitive in football and, and the team you have to beat in the american southwest is uh is mary harden baylor and now they've finally gotten a team that that may be able to match up with them physically, may may be able to, um, you know, to, to put, put points on the board against them. And now we get to see, was that early season game, was it just a fluky game uh, affected by the lightning delay and, and Mary harden Baylor wasn't itself after the delay? Or was it really legitimate coming out party for McMurray and and, and having this, uh, power program. And what a shame it would be to be quite honest, if, if McMurray, you know, wins that Mary Harden Baylor goes on this great run in the D three playoffs and then, uh, isn't around to to become a D three power.
0: Interesting. Good point. Um, and we know, of course, we don't know the status of Jake Mullen, who mentioned uh, our understanding is that it's a uh, partial meniscus tear. That's the cartilage in your knee for those of you who, uh, you know, don't follow injuries on a daily basis, uh, like those of us who write and cover sports. Um, but basically, you know, there's a shot he could be, uh, he could be available to play. Who knows whether, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what percent he'll be at, so to speak, and um, we're at the hour point of our podcast, but we are not going to give short shrift to these uh, three remaining games because, especially, we've got two real doozies. Including, I think, well, shoot, I was going to say the biggest toss-up of the bracket, but I think either of the next two games we got to talk about are uh, could could fit that could fit that bill. And we got Linfield crossing the country to play Wesley. This is a uh, a game that normally each of these teams would have to get through at least two other teams in order to play. for For Linfield, this is a uh, a shot at somebody outside of the uh, outside of the West Region or outside of another uh, another island program, like uh, for example, maybe Mary Hardin and Baylor, and a chance to prove themselves against a different part of Division Three. And for Wesley, this is a chance to uh, to get a win against a uh, a nationally respected team in Division Three that happens to wear purple, but hasn't been to the Stag Bowl any of the past seven or six years
1: you know wesley their history so many playoff games against mary harden baylor and uh you know that's what they're playing for an opportunity to, to play their annual clash against mary harden baylor uh deep in the playoffs but they have to go through wesley first i mean go through linfield first and that is really unprecedented in in the playoffs what we've seen we never see a west coast team have to come all the way east in the second round you know we've seen it happen in the semifinals, right? Rowan went out to Linfield one year. Yep. You know, we've seen Linfield have to travel halfway across the country to St. Thomas uh, in the second round or have it, have St. Thomas go out to Linfield or Linfield at Central Iowa, you know, go, going back several years. But we've seen trips like that, you know, Pacific Lutheran and St. John's would go back and forth, but you never see in the second round a team go coast to coast. And so that's a big deal um, in, in D3. And then, you know, to add to add this extra subtext to it, where um, that for whatever reason, we still can't really figure out why the, the seeds weren't put on the bracket, the, the team, the home host teams weren't um, revealed in advance. Now, we we were able to craft a bracket with seeds on it that pretty much figured out and, and where the games were going to be and it, and it held. But the teams themselves are waiting on the word on Sunday morning. They don't know if they're hosting. And, and you know, if, if you're McMurray and Mary Harden-Baylor, that's not a big deal. Either you, you, you drive to... You know, Abilene to Belton or Belton to Abilene doesn't, you know, doesn't much matter. You can get a bus just like you do every week. But for, for Linfield and Wesley, to not know if you're going to host or have to, you know, put 52, 60 some odd people on a, on a plane and go across the country and what day do you want to leave? How many classes do you have to skip? Where are we going to practice when we get to Delaware or Oregon? To not know all that, uh, is really sort of um absurd and adds a little bit of a subtext to this game. So now you got these two giant subtexts where. Coast to coast, very unfamiliar in D3. And then, Pat, as you mentioned, the um, the rare opportunity for power programs to, to play each other. It, it started to happen over the past few years in the playoffs. Um, it, it was happening, you know, in the 08, 09 when when Mary Hardin Baylor and Whitewater met in that regular season series, and then they would meet again in the playoffs, and then we saw it happen last year when Whitewater got sent on the road; they had to play at North Central, play at Wesley to get back to the Stag Bowl. These clashes and, and the set, we're setting up to have a bunch of them this year in the second round and the quarterfinal round. Uh, really, I think just I don't want uh, just what the what the game is all about. I guess I mean these are these are really going to be um, some of the more fun games uh Over the past several years, are all getting ready to happen in the next couple of weeks, and I think Linfield at Wesley is probably uh you know the top billing game this week, just for the 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 the, the reason of these these are two powerful programs. They've been on the scene since about 2004 a, as dominant programs in D three. You know, just to cut below that, Mount Union Whitewater Group, and they finally get to play each other. You know, Linfield hasn't played Mount Union either. We're, we're waiting to see that someday, but. um they got a chance to play Wesley and you get to go all the way across the country and uh, do something you haven't done before.
0: You know, there's been two seasons in the past 13 in which the NCAA has decided it was no longer going to release seedings on the bracket. Uh, This season obviously is one of them. We know that. 2009 was the other. In 2009, at least, uh, the NCAA had the courtesy, I guess, to uh, let sites know who would be hosting if team a beat team b and beat and team c beat team d obviously you know there's there's four teams to consider uh when you're thinking about a a future round matchup but that is what happened uh two years ago this information was available on thursday afternoon uh and you would know at the end of your game if you were traveling or if you were staying And, and this and this weekend specifically there's two real reasons why this is a i think an excessive burden on schools and on fans. And I know the NCAA doesn't care about the fan experience at the Division Three level, but it should. Um, when you can't book on Saturday to, to fly for travel for the next week, all of a sudden you no longer have a seven-day advance fare the, uh, the yeah. fares that I was looking at from Portland to uh, any of the possible places you could fly into play Wesley whether it was Baltimore Washington or Philadelphia they all went up by about hundred dollars between Saturday afternoon and uh, and Sunday afternoon when the uh, when the seatings were uh, were finally uh, revealed or the home sites were finally revealed the other thing is that um, even if you're hosting and you're not traveling you uh, we talked about you know the fact that there are not a lot of students around and that means that there are not a lot of people to work these games either some schools are going to be scrambling to find people to staff these games i know that um there were schools who asked on the very uh the very first conference call after the bracket was revealed saying do we know if we're hosting next week because if so i got to find someone to uh, you know to work in the press box that day and the ncaa wouldn't give them an answer and to be honest with you i think that shows uh, a lack of understanding of how a Division III school operates because this is not Division One and you don't simply just have a bunch of paid people that you can call in uh, you know, uh, on six days' notice. It just doesn't work that way in Division 3 I'm going to get off my soapbox for a second, though, um, and come back to the Linfield-Wesley game, and Keith, ask you, uh, I know we're, we're running long already, but your short answer on whether you think playing at 9 a.m. Pacific time is going to be a big deal for Linfield because that's uh, noon Eastern kickoff.
1: It's going to be a deal. I don't know if it's, if it's a big deal. You know, I'm one of those people who, who says at a certain point, you, you just boil everything down to what happens between the white lines. You know, it doesn't matter where you play or, or, or you know, it's, it's just do you match up well? Do you play your best game? You know, you quote Frosty, Frosty Westring. Are you are you being your best self that day? Um, but it's got to be some kind of difference because uh, not only are they playing at, at what their bodies will feel like is 9 a.m., which, you know, I don't know if I, when I was in college, I don't even wake up at 9 a.m. unless I had to for a class, you know. But not only that, they'll be just getting off a long plane ride. So and that that is a significant distance to go from coast to coast, probably take about four or five hours uh, as a flight. So you spend all that day traveling. You don't get much of a workout in. And then to try to turn around and play, it, it's going to be it's going to make some kind of difference for Linfield. Uh, and they're going to have to play uh, probably a better game than they played against Cal Lutheran to beat Wesley.
0: Linfield's travel, at least, will be somewhat easier because uh, uh, flights of that length in the NCAA playoffs are made by charter, so at the very least, uh, they'll uh, you know have a lot less hassle to deal with at the airport, and uh, a shorter trip, I assume, uh, there's probably a possibility for them to fly into Dover uh, or, or something more convenient than uh, driving in from Philadelphia. I, maybe not the Air Force base, but, you know, I'm sure there's something else that, that, that could work out there. Um, moving on to our uh, Mount Union bracket and uh, this Wabash North Central game, which uh, is is a game that, you know, we, we've talked a lot last week, for example, about what might happen in the third round. Uh, certainly projecting some things that might happen. But the, this is a uh, this is a game that should be pretty interesting as well. Uh, North Central, you mentioned, has been clicking on defense and on offense, um, you know, from. From having watched just a little bit of both teams this year, um, and seen a lot more on paper, uh, they seem to be fairly similar in terms of, uh, of offense. They're they're a lot more uh, focused around the ground game, uh, even more so for North Central, who's got uh, you know is basically almost running option with multiple different quarterbacks, from what I could see. Uh, over the course of the last couple of games, and then Wabash uh, is is doing some similar stuff as well. They both have dominant guys on defense. It should be a, a a really good battle.
1: And yeah, yeah, I mean, to a degree, these two teams would be looking in the mirror against each other. And, and if you're unfamiliar with either of them, you know they both wear red and white. They're both going to try to stick to the ground game and, and play great defense. So if you're watching this game, and I believe you will have the opportunity to actually literally watch it this week. Yep. Um, you will, uh, you know, you, you might be confused for the first quarter. Who's who? Well, you know, we'll help you figure it out. There's a big W on, on the Wabash helmet. Uh, so uh, you, you'll figure it out eventually. It, it um, does set up, Pat, as a second-round game that could easily be a quarterfinal. Pat, you know, you, you had the category of the first-round game that seemed most like a second-round game when, when, you know, 5th rank Linfield played 8th rank Cal Lutheran. This is virtually the same thing. 6th rank North Central. At ninth-ranked Wabash, Wabash ten and zero, so they're, they're the team that hosts this game, um, and, and and Wesley Linfield is actually kind of the same thing, the fifth-ranked Linfield against seventh-ranked Wesley. So we have two games, I think, right here in the second round that are that are matchups of top ten teams that could very well be, uh, you know, could be quarterfinal games. Um, the the one advantage, I guess, that that Wabash may have, or maybe they have two advantages that I can think of off the top of the head. Is um, West Chambly in the return game? Or am I pronouncing his last name right? Should I say Chambly?
0: No, I think you were right the first time.
1: All right, um, he's been able to give them, uh, uh, you know, a scoring threat in in the in, on special teams, and uh, you know, whenever whenever they've needed a big play this season, and I know Wabash for a long time, you know, wasn't in the meat of its schedule, uh, but but he's been good against against good teams. Uh, you know, he was, he, he had a great play on Saturday, you know, whatever, whoever Wabash has played, uh, he's come through. And so he gives them a big option. And then I think Wabash may be one of the teams that can, uh, that can draw on Saturday. I know they, they have a pretty boisterous student section for the, um the, the, the Mon and Bell rivalry, rivalry game. And then uh, this won't be anything quite like that, but they may be able to draw a pretty good crowd there on, uh, on Saturday for North central. And if they do, um, you know North Central draws draws as well, but Wabash is something special. They're a little bit boisterous and uh, it, it's a fun place to play so uh, uh, I think North Central is probably the you know the, the bigger, stronger, tougher more physical recruits w- when they get them at North Central and uh, you know maybe the, the tougher stronger team but um, Wabash has got a lot going for it and, and they played great defensively. I'm eager to see uh, how this one goes.
0: I'm just glad you're not anxious because uh, nothing uh, that uh, nothing affects our our uh, you know the core being of our lives at the very least. Um, that's sorry, that's editor humor. Uh, it is. Yeah, it's late, uh, and we have one game to go: Center versus Mount Union. We've touched on this a little bit. Uh, Center comes in, uh, you know, each team comes in having scored uh, you know 51 and 47 points. The uh, other side of the ledger looks a little bit different as well. Uh, however,
1: yeah, well. <laughs> center gave up 41 Mount union gave up seven and it was a little bit of a surprising seven to be quite honest uh benedictine actually put together a 10 play 51 yard touchdown drive early in the third quarter of that game so they put together a real touchdown drive against Mount union and, and you wouldn't think normally wow scoring seven points is something special but Mount union has been so good defensively this season and and really that's been their mo the past few seasons to just uh, snuff out any semblance of of a running game for the uh, other team and then let the uh let the defense pin its ears back you know they they were running the four two five defense for for a while and they switched it up to more of a two four five this year and so they have they have kind of what's like a what's like a hybrid defense with all these uh, kind of dynamic talents to be quite honest so on their on their defense guys who can stand up and rush guys who can drop back into pass coverage they have five defensive backs on the field that gives them the opportunity. To, to, to give so many looks. And so uh, Center's going to have its hands full trying to score on Mount Union. And by the, by the same token, you look at Mount Union, um, they got to be pretty confident coming in, looking at a team that that um, gave up 41 points last weekend.
0: And of course, these, uh, I was going to say 16, but these eight games are not the only things that are going on in Division three this week. Uh, later this week, we should have the uh, the 10 finalists for the Gilardi Trophy, that is the, uh, the top, uh, basically the award that goes to the top student-athlete, all-around student-athlete in Division Three. It takes into account not only a, uh, a, a young man's football ability, but his uh, success in the classroom and his uh, good works in the communities. It's uh, academics, athletics, and community service all go into that award. and It is, yes, named after John Gilardi of, uh, of St. John's University. For those of you who've never heard this name pronounced, because we haven't had a, a whole lot of opportunity to talk about them this year, you may think of it as the Gagliardi Trophy, but it's the gagliardi Trophy. It's, uh, just think of it as an Italian name. Uh, so that's this week. Um, before the next podcast uh, hits, the, uh, hits the internet, we have the deadline for all region nominations, so this is a note especially for SIDs. Uh, you got an email about this last week but uh, nomination deadline is next Sunday night the 27th I um, and it takes into account only regular season games uh, just like the email I, I sent mentioned um, you know we'll be coming up on uh, some other things going on around division three of course I know that um, most of you won't be around the site much on Thursday because um, you know there's probably some turkey in your uh, future somewhere uh, I understand I tried to not be around the site myself too much on Thursday, uh, but we will still have plenty of feature stories all week, uh, uh, including uh, half a dozen features about um, that are planned about games coming up this week in the uh, second round of the playoff bracket. And, and Keith, I don't know if he had anything else to say here, but it's a, a pretty uh, busy week coming up, even though it's a short week for us, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and, and that, that makes it one of the odd weekends in uh, in all the football, all the college football, but but for us in Division three, yeah, we're we're trying to cram every all the coverage that we would normally spread out all the way to Friday. We're going to try to get that up on on the site by about halfway through Wednesday. So when you check out of work and head home, um, you know you've had an opportunity to to prepare for the weekend, and then the holiday goes by. You come back Saturday morning and start thinking about football again. Um, you know we'll we'll be we'll be there the whole time. That's a great thing about the web; never shuts down. And uh, there are all-star games coming up, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit more uh, next week's podcast so that we, as we get a little bit closer to the, to the day to some of these games. But if your team season is over, if it just ended, uh, there's still, uh, believe it or not, there's, there's lots of reason to hang around the site. And uh, we have got, got really, I think, this week coming up, maybe the best second round I can remember in, in terms of the playoff matchups. Um, you know, you don't know who's going to win a couple of these games, Linfield at Wesley, probably as big of a toss-up as we can.
0: And uh, if you're really in a position or in a mood where you, you, uh, you're you so frustrated about your season ending that you can't deal with football anymore, uh, check out d3hoops.com, check out d3hockey.com. Uh, almost certainly, your school has at least one of those sports, right? Um, and uh, you know, maybe you're one of the uh, 70 or so schools that has both, so you uh, get your uh, get your winner on um, also you know one other thing about this weekend I mentioned the the short weekend um, you know this is a weekend where there may be not a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of fans in the stands especially in the playoffs um, I think most people know that the NCAA takes over these games so the ticket prices are set uh, and the ticket policies are set by the NCAA so there are no free tickets for students anymore some schools may uh, pay for tickets out of their own budget to try to get students in the stands, but it just not may not be as many. So, if you look around and you see, oh, there's only 11 or 1,200 people at this game, you know, it, it's just kind of the nature of the beast this time of year. Uh, if you have an opportunity to go to your game, go to your game. Don't sit at home because this is uh, this is the uh, the time of year where, yeah, uh, you know, if you don't think players notice this stuff, that they're uh, you know, 10,000 fans at St. John, St. Thomas, and only 2,000 at St. Thomas, St. Scholastica, snow aside. I think those things are noticed. So uh, get out there, because, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is the best part of the football season right now. And dress warmly. And so for Keith McMillan, I'm Pat Coleman, wrapping up the uh, Around the Nation podcast for Monday, November 21st, 2011.